Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is C.M. Alexander with the news. Horror icon Mick Garris has returned to Dairy Upon seeing our sad, pouting faces on a level he described as Dickensian, he invited us to dinner on the condition we cease following him everywhere he goes and asking if he's hungry yet. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. I'm Mick Garrison. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And joining us via Zoom, one of the all-time best directors who is responsible for bringing us some of the best horror and Stephen King adaptations out there through the lens of Norman Rockwell Goes to Hell. He is the <laughs> master of horror and the host of Postmortem with Mick Garris. You heard us talk about his life and career. Now you'll hear from him yourself. Welcome to the show, Mick Garris. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you, CM. It's really good to be here. I appreciate it. It is so exciting to have you here and to see your gorgeous case behind you with all of your... (laughs) Well, expect to be let down. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about uh, a few of your projects on our show before. And honestly, did never never expected we get the chance to actually talk to you. So this is a big day for us. Oh, I'm very unapproachable. It's very, <laughs> very you, yeah. After reading your biography, you seem really standoffish and hard to approach. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, once they write a book about you, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get started with the interview proper, I'm going to turn things over to CM, who holds the keys to the kingdom for the rest of this interview. CM, take it away. So Josh always tries to make the sound very, very intimidating for our guests, like something terrible is going to happen or I'm going to end the meeting and just cancel the Zoom if you don't answer correctly. And if that happens, I think this time I will just excuse myself. I will leave the room (laughs) and you guys can keep going. So I wouldn't dare cancel the Zoom on a master of horror. So, (laughs) All right. So my first question What was your introduction to Stephen King's work, your first memory? The first book I read was The Stand. No, I read Salem's Lot first. And uh, that was the one that really hooked me. And from then on, I I read every single one that came out when it came out. I did not see Carrie first because, like most people of my age, when the movie Carrie came out, nobody had read the book before. Mm -hmm. It was not a best-selling book. And the movie made it a bestseller. So it wasn't until years later that I finally did read Carrie. But yeah, it was Salem's Lot. There's the long answer. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a preference for reading versus watching first? No, I, I just like writing versus directing. They're two very, very different things, but I I love them equally. I I love to read. It's only been in the last couple of years that I've started listening to audiobooks, Mm -hmm. which is a great experience too. But I love all kinds of media. I love film, television, when it's done right. And books when they're done right. But (laughs) but yeah, I, I, I love them all. And I spend a lot of time doing that. Awesome. So my second question, on our podcast, we often talk about what we call Stephen King moments. And it's something that we really appreciate about his work because it's it's usually that one thing, just a sentence he might throw out there that terrifies you. And the sentence itself is not terrifying. 
but it just right. sticks with you. And that's so fun. Do you have a Stephen King moment from either one of his movies or his books? You know, it would probably be uh, not a particular sentence, but probably be the woman in 217 rising out mm. of the bathtub. <laughs> that moment is horrifying. <laughs> and then and you made our, your wife in do our it. In miniseries, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was my wife. But she has a lovely personality. <laughs> yeah, you find a woman like that in the bathtub, you marry her. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Next year, it'll be 40-year anniversary. So. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. In Hollywood. Who, who'd have thunk it? Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Now that, I, now that we say that out loud, though, I realize you've had your wife do a lot of bathtub work. With uh, quick <laughs> in uh, Quicksilver Highway, also that's right. Matt Frewer, killed, <laughs> Matt Frewer, and my wife, one of my best friends, and my wife in a bathtub together. I'm not <laughs> sure, what was going on in my mind there? Uh, oh, trust me, we'll talk about Quicksilver Highway later because I was uh-huh. so happy to be reading about it in your book because I loved that. Movie. I love that show. Well, you're one of two people who've seen. A <laughs> uh, good news, you passed, so I get to stay on the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Before we get into your uh, your adaptations and your other work, I just kind of have a few general life questions for you. In your biography, Abby says that everyone she reached out to to be interviewed could not say yes fast enough because you were such a nice and genuine person. In an industry where so many people feel like they have to be cutthroat to succeed, was that ever challenging for you to not play to that level and do your own thing? Well, it depends on the reason you go into the arts. You know, I do it for the love of the arts, not to be rich and famous. And anyone who is a writer or a would-be filmmaker or artist of any kind whose raison d'etre to, to go into the arts is to become rich and famous and powerful is destined to fail. That happens with people, but, you know, I've always felt that the best way to, in a collaborative form like filmmaking, the best way to get the best work onto the screen is to encourage the best people to do their best work and and try to create a, a platform where everybody's proud of what they're doing and that they're doing something special. It's always been my philosophy from the time I was in a band in my 20s to, you know, in my teens even, to do something new and exciting and original and, and try and, and share that enthusiasm with other creative people. I loved in the, the chapter of your biography about horse feathers, <laughs> the, the sentence about you were writing soundtracks to movies that didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I, I love that approach to creation. Yeah, well, you know, John Carpenter has literally done that with his last few CDs of his original music for movies that don't exist. But, you know, we our music was progressive rock, so it was very arranged. It wasn't your standard three chord progressions. You know, CM, I know you're a musician, you're in a band. And so you understand that when you try and do something different with movements and and inspired by classical music, but approached with a sense of humor, it's more than just something you put on in the background. Mm-hmm. It's something you sit down and listen to. Yeah. yeah, for sure. What was your initial reaction when you were approached about someone writing a biography about you? Laughter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I seriously never imagined anyone would. 
And two or three different people asked me about that. And I said, you'll never find a publisher. So who would want to read about me? I work with people much more successful and famous than me. <laughs> and I've always been the zealot, the little out of focus guy in the black and white photo with famous people in the foreground. <laughs> and I've known Abby for like 40 years. And she came to me a few times and I, you know, I nodded and, and said <laughs> yes, knowing that would never happen. So when she came to me and said that there's a publisher who not only was interested, but was enthusiastic, I'd already said I would if she did. And it was like, oh, shit, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> and she did such a good job. She's one of the most ethical people I've ever met in my life. And so to trust my story in her hands was an easy decision. But like I, I say with regularity, my mom's dead. Who's going to buy it? <laughs> <laughs> well, we are. For sure. And <laughs> well, hopefully if you were members of the press, aren't you getting? <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know that you guys had that pre-existing relationship, but hearing that it makes so much sense because her book is so, I mean, it's a biography, so of course it's personal, but it's so personal in just a, a lovely way that I don't find I often get with biographies, even if they're also really good. Oh, thanks. Well, she did a, a wonderful job and it's a, a unique format in that it's mostly people, me talking about the the work and other people I've worked with or family members who've worked with me or spent time with me. But I first met Abby when I was a lowly publicist and she was a journalist and I was trying to get her to write articles mm -hmm. about clients. So, uh, <laughs> That's awesome. The, the shoe went to the other. Floor. Yeah. I have to make a correction here just specifically. <laughs> I know exactly what you're going to say. For Abby, who reached out to me on social media and very kindly corrected something I had, a remark I had made, I, I was being kind of silly. It was one of my slightly more lecherous remarks on the oh, episode. Oh, I have a feeling did. I know. <laughs> yeah. So for the record, this is for you, Abby. Abby did not say you were erotic. She was talking about your work being, you know, more erotic or sensual. I don't even know if she used the word erotic. <laughs> that that's my fault. So. Oh well, I'm so disappointed. No. <laughs> now this is you were so kind to listening to our episode about your biography. As you know, the tops of our show, we do those radio intros, and we referenced a, a dinner with Mick Garris. You've had <laughs> dinner with so many iconic and creative people. What is dinner with Mick Garris like, and how do we get an invitation? Oh, well, <laughs> he's so shameless. I, I will, apologize. I will, I will slide any chance I can to get. First places. of all, it's not dinner <laughs> with me. It's a, a group of people who have a common job. In this case, it's directing horror feature films. So once you get that out in the theaters, Joshua, got it. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't had one in a couple of years, not just because of COVID, but. You know, they'd grown so large. There were like 35 directors at the last one. And oh, my God. It's, there's no wives or husbands or girlfriends or boyfriends or anything like that, uh, because it would just be so out of hand. Uh, you know, <laughs> 70 people yeah. having dinner. It's kind of just a freeform social gathering. It's not a work thing, but, uh, you know, it's just a bunch of people who work in the same line, like, 
you know, masters of dentistry might have there. <laughs> That's also horrifying. Yes. I've also tried to get invited to that dinner. <laughs> That's and they qualify. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's that just sounds amazing to get the opportunity to sit around and talk shop with people who speak the same language. Exactly. It's the same thing behind the podcast. I'm a filmmaker talking to filmmakers and going out to dinner with other filmmakers who work in the same disrespected uh, gutter genre that I do <laughs> is a really nice experience. And it's not to say we're talking shop all the time, but we have shared experiences that make it easy to become friends. Well, speaking of the podcast, uh, on your show, Postmortem, about every other week you do an episode, Ask Mick Anything. Right. What inspired that, and has it affected your impression of interviews? Yes and no. What inspired it was that we were doing the show on a biweekly basis, the interviews every other week. And in order to not lose momentum, you know, we're now with our fourth or fifth podcast network, I think the fourth one. Yeah, and uh, with Dread Podcast Network. And they've been great. But when we went to Fangoria, that was our third home. We decided to keep the momentum up. It was Joe Russo, my producing partner's idea, to do an AMA so that we would have something on those in-between weeks that people who subscribe would be able to go to every week rather than to skip a week and maybe forget about us. <laughs> so it was because my IMDb list is so long and everything <laughs> that preceded that, we figured that, you know, that would last for a while, but it's lasted a couple of years now. I can imagine. I've I listened to several of them because as I in our emails back and forth, I mentioned that you talking about interviewing in your book really inspired me because interviewing is something I've only been really doing for the past year. And I I really love it. And I think it's it's yeah. amazing. And I love your approach to it. Oh, thank you. It's curiosity, yeah. really. You know, it's it's me finding things out that I want to know. And I figure if I want to know, the audience will want to know. And I, I started doing it as a teenager when I was first a music journalist. And I interviewed people like Frank Zappa and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix when I was 16 years old. And then got into film journalism and hosting a TV show on, on the local pay TV channel in LA. And it was something that I loved and did out of curiosity. It's a great place to come from. With you having interviewed people since you were a teenager, how do you prep for interviewing someone for the first time? I'm familiar with their work. I familiarize myself with their work. And I frankly don't do an interview unless I'm interested in their work and, and who they are. But I used to have a list of questions. And sometimes I would never look at them. Sometimes, depending on who the guest was, I would need to look at them often to, <laughs> to keep things going. But for the most part, the longer I started doing it, after the first year of postmortem, I would just jot down a handful of notes of what their credits were just so I didn't have a brain freeze. But I treated it more like a conversation than an interview, you know, asking questions that I'm curious about and that I feel other people will be curious about. So I normally just write my introduction and then we just go into a conversation and see where it takes us as long as I, I can remember mm -hmm. what, what the work is so I don't, <laughs> pass, I don't pass up any really important points in, in what we're talking about. I always get worried about retreading questions you've been asked a thousand times, especially interviewing someone like yourself who has done a lot of interviews and you do your own interview with yourself every other week. Well, it's kind of <laughs> inevitable that that's going to happen, <laughs> yeah. you know, 
I've been lucky enough to have worked on some pretty high profile things amongst all the other lower profile things <laughs> that are done. But the main thing is to try and not repeat yourself in the answers and not, you know, try and make it fresh each time mm -hmm. around because it's, it's not fair to the interviewer and to the audience to say the same things over and over. And I admit I'm guilty of that sometimes, but there are only so many times uh, you can answer the question, what's it like working with Stephen King? <laughs> <laughs> in regards to all of the work you've done, is there anything in the entertainment industry left that you want to do or something that you would like to do more of that you haven't done enough of? Sure. You know, as much as I love the horror genre, I've been kind of confined into that. You know, it's it's a lovely prison to be locked into, <laughs> but, you know, it's even more specific than that. People think of me as the Stephen King <laughs> sure. So I would love to do, uh, I'm doing some other work outside of the genre that may or may not get made, but I would love to do something, you know, I'd love to do a major motion picture. You know, the last big theatrical release I had was Sleepwalkers back in the nineties. And it would be great to do something that people actually go out to the theater to see and that, that has an impact and is something a little different. You know, i I'm proud of the work in the genre. I love the genre and I will be its strongest defender, at least the good stuff. But, um, you know, I'd love the opportunity. I've had a couple of chances to work outside of it, but uh, I'd love the opportunity to not just do that. But I would always come back. This is home. Have you ever gone? Have you ever set out to write something to make that happen? Or are you much yeah. more I, natural? Many times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how I first started. I was first hired as a screenwriter by Steven Spielberg, but I had written a spec script called Uncle Willie, which was about a, a kid show host in the 1950s who attempts and botches a suicide and disfigures himself. It's not a horror movie. It's something that's actually much more tender hearted than that and nostalgic to a time in my very earliest childhood. And it's what got me hired on Amazing Stories. I have another script that I wrote not too long after that, that I just recently completely rewrote because it's one of my favorite ideas ever. And uh, it has just been optioned by a production company that I'm really excited about. It takes place in 1936. It's an all black cast. So I don't want to direct it myself. I want to produce it, but I want an African-American or a, a black director to do it. And that's something, it's a step outside of the safety zone. And, and I love that. That sounds amazing. I, I hope so. Yeah. We'll see. Well, I talked about this on our episode and because Ben asked if I could ask you any question, what would it be? So here oh, it is. Right. <laughs> what is your favorite thing or the best thing you've ever written but never sold or sent? I think this script that I've just had optioned, it hasn't been sold yet, it's been <laughs> optioned. That is my favorite thing that hasn't been made. And my novel, Salome, I would love to... It's a noir novel. It's a Hollywood desert noir murder mystery. Mm. And I would love to adapt that and direct that for the screen. Um, it's not a horror story, but it has horrific elements. Nothing supernatural. Nice. Have you started conversations about possibly adapting it for a screenplay? I've had conversations, but it's really up to me when I'm ready to do it. This other one, which is called Jimmy Miracle, I decided that was the time to resurrect that and turn it into something completely new. 
And so Salome may be on the next burner, but I also love starting new stuff. And if I'm not shooting, often that will be narrative fiction, uh, like the books that I've, I've written. What was it like picking up something that you'd written so long ago in order to revise it for present day audiences? Thrilling, because first it's a period piece set in 1936, so that didn't change much. But with your own work, when you're going to adapt it, readapt it, you can be ruthless. You know, if I'm doing something with Stephen King, I know what the audience expects and the respect that I have for his work uh, or Clive Barker or whomever I've worked with. But if it's my own work, I can do whatever I want. You know, I adapted a short story of mine for my first episode of Masters of Horror that I wrote and directed called Chocolate. And the short story only goes about halfway and the rest of the movie is entirely new. And I'm just able to reinvent it without pissing anybody off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd hope you wouldn't piss yourself off with how you changed it. I might. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you've watched an entire generation of new filmmakers growing up more film literate, as you put it. Is there any advances in writing or filmmaking that you look at now and you're like, God, I wish I had that back in the day for this project? Well, the tools of filmmaking have have become completely unleashed. You can visualize. (laughs) Every generation says this. Oh, my God, you can make anything you can imagine onto the screen. When Star Wars happened in 1977, all of that use of blue screen and miniatures Mm -hmm. and motion control was brand new and nobody had ever seen that. And it's like, my God, what you can do now. But with digital technology done well, it looks real. Mm -hmm. It's completely believable in ways that stop motion could never. And even you know, working with physical effects, makeup effects and the like, being able to perfect those makeup effects with digital effects, digital effects that don't look like video game effects (laughs) is often the case. But you really can create anything and make it dead real and not just fanciful. Those are tools, but also movies move faster now than they did a generation or two before. It's a not very literate audience these days. Not many people read these days. So movies can still be literate and intelligent, but they move at a much faster pace, uh, sometimes at the risk of losing some of the depth of character that you have. Mm -hmm. Has that changed your approach to writing now? It probably has, but because I've been doing it all along, I, I would assume that I'm in a state of metamorphosis and evolution at all times. I never want to calcify. I I know a lot of filmmakers of my age and older who, you know, gray-haired filmmakers, who (laughs) they have a great deal of success with something and they don't necessarily evolve beyond that. They stay there, it's their comfort zone and they have success with it and more power to them. You know, I would love to have those giant financial theatrical successes myself but they stop challenging themselves. And that sometimes can be heartbreaking. Or if you like where they are and what they do, they can do it for the rest of their lives and Mm -hmm. still make you happy. I've never gotten to the point where I've done billion dollar box office movies and can coast on that. I'm, I'm constantly trying to not only keep up with the curve, but try and keep a step or two ahead of it. Now let's talk about your, your body of work. First and most important question, who is the best actor you've ever worked with and why is it Matt Frewer? (laughs) (laughs) 
Matt Frewer is one of my favorite human beings and he's my good luck charm. And I've, <laughs> I've worked with him, I think six times and anytime I can find a place for him and he's available, he's there. He's one of them. I mean, Pierce Brosnan was such a treat to work with Gary Sinise. Well, Ruby D just talk about an yeah. acting phenomenon uh, from stage and screen and television and everything. You know, I've, I've been very, very fortunate to work with some incredible people. Steven Weber, people think of him as that guy from Wings until he <laughs> did The Shining and what a performance he gave. That was the performance mm -hmm. of his life. And I, I got to work with Elliot Gould, who, you know, it wasn't a long time, but my God, what a, an amazing opportunity and, and education for me. Anthony Perkins may have been complicated, but <laughs> boy, what a, what a performance and what, a, what an opportunity and education for me. My husband recently picked up the four disc set of all the Psycho movies. Awesome. And I, I was familiar because, you know, I, I am alive and exist in this world. <laughs> but I realized I'd never seen any of the movies, which is really, yeah, that's terrible. So we watched them and it was really interesting because we sat down and over the course of a couple of nights, we watched them basically back to back. And I think. I don't know if anyone listening has done that, but I think watching them so quickly together tells a really cool story that you might not get seeing them spread so far apart. And I thought Psycho 4 was a really nice like end and wrap up of this progression of the story that you don't necessarily okay. expect seeing the first movie. Yeah, I mean, usually a movie with a number four in the title is not very high hopes. But <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was really lucky because... The screenplay was written by Joseph Stefano, who wrote Hitchcock's original Psycho screenplay. So being able to work with him and Hitchcock's first assistant director, Hilton Green, was my executive producer. He was on the set. Tony Perkins, you know, the resources we had mm -hmm. for that. So, you know, credit to all of yeah. those people. I was just the lucky guy who had the reins <laughs> and, and was able to to try and fulfill the vision that originated with Robert Block's novel and then Hitchcock developing it with Joe Stefano. And, you know, it's great DNA to have uh, inherited. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And to have Anthony Perkins there. Yeah, he was a big part of it. Yeah. Well, he wanted to direct it, but Psycho 3 was, let's say it wasn't a huge success. Yeah. And so Universal didn't want him to. So they hired the director of Critters 2. And how must that seem to a guy? <laughs> They who saw has worked with Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> and with William Wyler and, and uh, Orson Welles and Mick Garris? <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, Hitchcock never had a giant ball of critters rolled That's down true. a street. Oh, yeah. That's true. He didn't have the opportunity. <laughs> the technology wasn't there yet, or surely he would have. <laughs> I want to now jump back to Quicksilver Highway uh, uh, because I, I cannot stress how near and dear that tv movie was for me uh you're a rare man <laughs> <laughs> the matt frewer in, in that entire thing is burned in my memory him crawl his his hands crawling him down the hallway <laughs> the the shot of his screaming face in the cleaver as he cuts his own hand yes. off all that stuff's amazing and i could talk about it forever but what i really want to know the very end all of the hands flying off the roof 
<laughs> Did you just have a bunch of prop hands and people just whipping them off the top of this building? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we were on top of the building. We had people up there tossing those hands. And, you know, none of those were digital. Digital technology was at such an early stage and early age at that time that they ranged, depending on who the digital artist was, some of them still look great. And a lot mm-hmm. of them look really cartoony and yeah. not so hot. But hopefully the ludicrousness of it <laughs> overrides it all. Because, you know, Clive's story, The Inhuman Condition, is, is not a hilarious story. I just thought setting it in a Beverly Hills plastic surgery clinic <laughs> and yeah. turning it into a commentary on that side of humanity, in quotes, was just too delicious to pass up. <laughs> Well, and everybody, everybody gave it their all. The horror on people's faces as their hands are rebelling <laughs> against them. It, it <laughs> takes what could be so silly and makes it and really it is, something that but, sticks. <laughs> yeah, but you play it straight. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so great. I loved it so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Because it was, it was a goofy one, and, and not many people saw it. And I've only done two flat-out comedies, and, and a lot of people don't recognize that that's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> that, between that and Critters too. I mean, yeah. I often have, uh, I hopefully always have at least some humor in everything I do. But those were the two that I really was able to go for it. But. Yeah. You made me think that Critters 2 was was just Critters. Like, that was all that existed of that universe. It was always Critters 2 for me. <laughs> I was like, I remember that movie. <laughs> I remember what you said on the show about that. That uh, the elements you remembered from all of the Critters movies all happened. You know? <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. Uh, in your book, you talked very briefly about you almost directed Rose Red. Uh, yeah. what, what happened with that? Why didn't we get a Mick Garris Rose Red? It was going to be a feature film. Stephen King had written the script uh, on spec and sold it to Spielberg. Spielberg loved it, but Spielberg wanted more character and depth. And, you know, there's a lot of things in Rose Red that if you sit down and try and tear it apart logically, it's easy to find holes (laughs) in in that logic because it's obviously a tribute to the haunting. Mm -hmm. So there were some battles. Stephen King, and I, I probably use these words in the interview, but it's it's appropriate that I was between two 800-pound gorillas and I was a <laughs> chimp. Um, and they agreed to disagree after a while. You know, Steve King had done a couple of rewrites for notes that Spielberg had. I'm sure it's weird for Stephen King to have a boss. <laughs> but Spielberg was producing it. And there were things that he thought the script still needed. And King and he decided to disagree as friends and just decide, well, we'll do it another time. And then after five years, the rights reverted back to Stephen King, who did it as a miniseries. So it was going to be, as Spielberg said, I want this to be your follow-up to The Stand because The Stand had been such a big Mm -hmm. success and Spielberg had been the first guy to hire me as a writer and the second guy to hire me as a director. He wanted us to do this together, him and me and and King. They were both right. Uh, Mm -hmm. Spielberg had a vision for what he wanted his company to produce and King had a vision of the story he wanted to tell. The irony of it is that Years later, Amblin 
Spielberg's production company, did a remake of The Haunting mm. that did everything that was in Rose Red that Spielberg wanted changed. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he produced The Haunting and it did all of those same things with <laughs> some of the same plot holes and uh, illogical inconsistencies. <laughs> yeah, we did a, a three-part series on Rose Red and just had a lot uh, of fun jumping, <laughs> just jumping through those holes. It was a blast. Yeah, there is a whole lot of them. And so I wasn't too disappointed because, you know, I didn't want to be making decisions that there would have been a lot of Spielberg and King influences in there. And it was a big studio picture. It was going to be a $40 million movie. And I'd never done anything of that scope. And I still haven't. You know, doing the things for television, the miniseries, it was high-end television. It was the the top of the game we were doing there. And because it was me and King together, we, we had no interference from network and studio, because particularly after the, the stand being so hugely successful. But they knew what they were getting because they knew the book, they knew the success of the book and all that. With Rose Red, that was an original screenplay, and they weren't sure what they were getting. And and you start getting notes from studio executives and the like. And I'm not disappointed not to have done it. I'm disappointed not to have made a big feature studio film with King and Spielberg, but that one may not have been the right one. Mm-hmm. Certainly not at the right time. I take a McGarris <laughs> Rose Red yeah. like, in a heartbeat. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> You have also slipped in so many cameos to yeah. your your other horror icon friends. Uh, for instance, the one that always jumps out to me is, is Sleepwalkers, that one yeah. long shot with uh, Toby Hooper, Clive Barker, and Stephen King. Yeah. When you were making those, did you ever think, I'm putting an Easter egg in my movie that in 20, 30 years, someone's going to watch and freak out about? And be like, oh my God, those no, guys. That that was never really mm-hmm. done at the time. And you write books, you make movies, you make TV shows for now. I mean, only a few people make their movies for 20 years from now. And especially at that time, you know, this was 1992. So the, the video re- revolution was there, but Criterion had not really become the main source of of how people put out discs with all those all that extra material and the like the whole point was to just do something to be consumed now and reach the widest audience possible but in this case i love the fact that there's google gobble one of us you know we're the <laughs> ones who would recognize those i remember going opening night on Hollywood Boulevard to the Chinese theater which was a 1200 seat theater uh, on opening night and seeing it play with a full house. And when that scene comes on, hear this ripple of the insiders going, hey, that's Stephen King. Hey, that's Toby Hooper. Hey, that's Clive Barker. And it was thrilling. And it also makes you feel special that you recognize those things that the people around you don't. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an Easter egg for in the theater, uh, yeah. you know? God, I didn't even think about that ripple effect in the theater. That's so great. You kids today. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember what the reaction in the theater was when Ron Perlman was beaten to death with his own arm, which is my favorite part of that movie? (laughs) Oh, well, that got an amazing reaction. (laughs) It was it was a delighted scream. (laughs) You know, it was not just a gross out, but a delighted scream. But I'll tell you the biggest reaction in the whole movie is when mother and son are in the kitchen (laughs) dancing. And when that 
kiss happen. <laughs> 1,200 teens and 20-year-olds all went, talk about delight. That was the best moment <laughs> I can think of in a movie theater with oh, one of my movies. I, I think I figured out what's wrong with me. Yeah? That I watched Sleepwalkers a little too young. <laughs> I, my, my dad loves horror, which is probably why I love horror, and he'd always rent movies and let me watch some of them, but not others. And that was one I kind of had to sneak and try to catch. So I didn't catch all of it, but I somehow caught those parts. <laughs> well, sorry, not sorry. No, yeah, I'm not. I don't regret it. <laughs> I hope not. Well, I know that you got you and Stephen King were very proud of it, and when it, it was everything you guys wanted it to be, but it wasn't super well received with critics. But how does it feel now, knowing that the the horror community online is more behind it? now than it was when it first came out well when it first came out even the horror community wasn't that much behind it the audience oh. was i mean it, it was the number one movie the week it came out but it lasted one week which is you know the horror audience is fickle and <laughs> they uh they go the first week and then okay we've seen it we're done but even the horror community it, it's not the most elevated horror that you can imagine and it is almost a drive-in horror movie but with a little more, you know, there's a commitment, there's a level of actor that you don't normally get in a drive-in movie or this kind of horror movie that really goes for it. It's a monster movie, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it has these touches of sexuality to it and the like. But when you add uh, Alice Krieger and Ron Perlman and Brian Krause and Machen Amick, it elevated it, which I hate the term elevated horror because it, it, disrespects an entire genre. But in this case, they didn't treat it like they were acting in a horror movie. They treated it like they were acting in a drama. And that's my philosophy mm -hmm. on how to make every kind of movie. Yeah, I think the, the more you play it straight, the, well, the scarier and the better it is. And the funnier, you know, yeah. comedy mm -hmm. that's played like Benny Hill, you know, is a <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's, it's transitory. But when you play really great comedy straight, it's amazing. You know, you see a show like Inside Number Nine and you've got actors like Reese Shearsmith and, and Steve Pemberton. They just make it real and outrageously over the top at the same time. <laughs> you know, I, I stand by my erotic comment. <laughs> I don't take it back after this. It, yeah. <laughs> oh, I wish I would have gotten a picture of that. You winked at me. You missed oh. it, Josh. You're, well, speaking oh, of... Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. This is going to be a fight. Speaking of erotic, so you made the incredibly successful Stand miniseries. Everybody loves that. It's very near and dear to fans' hearts. Uh, what did you think of Alexander Skarsgård? I mean, the Stand remake. <laughs> Speaking of eroticism, yeah, he <laughs> didn't affect me that way. Uh, well, you're missing out. Yeah, CM is in <laughs> love with Alexander Skarsgård. Yeah, no, I thought it was really great to see somebody play it in a totally different way. You know, cast in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's a you know Jamie played it in ours with so much joy, and yes. he loved being in control and having the power to do what he wanted. And it was played totally differently by Skarsgård in, in the new version. I think, 
And, and I, I liked the way he played it, not just because mm-hmm. I enjoyed watching him play it, but I thought he did a good <laughs> job. But it's, I do wish it, if it had not been him, if there had been that kind of wonderful goofiness yeah. that, <laughs> you know, that Jamie brought to it that I kind of attribute to you, like you infuse that comedy and that more lighthearted stuff that just is pulled off well in your work. And I think that would have been well, neat to have that. Thank you. But I, I have to share the credit with, with the script with which King himself wrote mm-hmm. and, you know, just those conversations that, that Jamie and I had an actor brings a lot to it. And the greatest thing that can happen is what happened in the casting session for the stand on the very first casting interview we did was with Matt Frewer, whom I'd never met before. It was the scene where Randall Flagg holds up the cigarette lighter to him. And, you know, it's my my life for you. You could read it and just make it goofy. This guy is, is nuts. Uh, he's out of control. But Matt brought this pathos to it that none of us in the casting session, including Stephen King and our casting director, Lynn Kressel, none of us expected the depth to which it went, where his eyes were filling with tears and mm. You don't expect that in that scene when you just read it on paper. And, you know, you didn't get that in the new version of it. But mm-hmm. the whole reason they did a new version was because they didn't want to do what we had done. They yeah. wanted to bring new life to it and more power to them. To be fair, Trash Can Man is the real hero of the stand. <laughs> I mean, yes, in a way. <laughs> it, would, it, would, it wouldn't go the way it goes with it without him. That's right. Speaking of the the stand in, in the earth's experience with actors from it, there was a story you told in the bio- biography that really jumped out to me, which was about Laura Sangiacomo, who played Nadine, showing up on her first day, her death scene with rewrites. Yeah. And uh, I just, I, I would like you, for anybody who hasn't read the, the book yet, to talk about that and kind of talk about how you handled it, because I, I find it so fascinating. Well, it was a real challenge for me as a relatively new director. You know, I'd only been directing for a few years and not constantly for those few years. And it had this giant cast and you learn every actor needs to be handled in a different way and wants to be handled in a different way. And in this case, it wasn't her first day, but it was close to her first day. We had five months of shooting ahead of us and she came to the set with a sheaf of handwritten pages on here's my rewrite for the scene. And it's like, well, wait wait a minute. Um, Let's have a conversation. You realize, don't you, that Stephen King wrote the script to his most popular book ever. And the respect for King is extremely important. Yes, we're doing something different. We're doing it in a different medium. But King knows this medium. He's written this script. He's put a lot more time and thought into this than you have. And there are other actors in this scene who are affected by this. They've done their work. They come to the set ready with the pages that they have been working on. And for you to come in and make changes to what affects the other actors' work is something that is really going to wreak havoc. So what we did was there were changes in dialogue that she felt more comfortable with that did not affect how the other actors responded and the like. And so I used what I could to make her feel that she contributed Mm -hmm. to the scene without it changing the meaning of the scene or without it changing the interplay with the other actors. Because actors will look at a scene, they won't know what the scene before is, 
or what's after because most movies are shot out of order. You rarely shoot a scene, a movie from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. You shoot all the scenes in one location at one time in one pocket, all the scenes with one actor in one location. And, you know, you have to do it in pockets of convenience rather than in real time. So it's everybody's job to know context, but it's the director's job to know everybody else's context as well. And the script supervisor's job. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's <laughs> really, really affects their day. Yeah. But I think that's so great that that speaks to your collaborative spirit to not just shut down that and make it a big deal. The fact that you took the time to find that what works best for everybody is I think what makes you stand out as a terrific director. You're a director actors want. Well, I thank you. But I also knew that I was going to be working with her for five months. And do I want to upset one of my leading ladies? <laughs> yeah. That I'm going to be working with for five months and set a tone there or set a tone of collaboration. And look, Frank Capra's biography was called One Man, One Film. And that's just not how movies are made. In his case, Yes, he controlled it, but he was not the director of photography. And in those days, the director of photography actually designed the, the shots rather than these days. A director is normally the guy who works and collaborates with the director of photography and say how they want it lit and what lenses they want used and, and that sort of thing, the coverage you're going to shoot. Your production designer has a lot to do with contributing to the look of the film. You work with these people. And there is a village of people responsible for making a film. And if you collect the most talented people who are better than you are at their job, you're going to get the best movie possible. It's a great philosophy. You've talked about the fact that weather was not on your side for the course of the stand. But oh, the, the scene that jumped out to me the most is the gas station car crash scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did I just trigger something in your <laughs> Oh, that was absolutely horrible because we were not going to shoot with rain and we had rain and it was very uncomfortable. And because we're shooting at night and it was very cold in Utah where we were shooting, we not only had to continue the scene on the next night, but we had to make our rain and we had to pump water from a cold source oh, God. and it was really cold. And one of the actors, the, the guy who dies in the scene, who comes out of the car after his wife and baby are uh, have died, this guy could barely deliver his lines because he was shivering so much. We'd put a wetsuit under his clothing to protect him and all, but he's literally doing this, <laughs> trying oh, no. to, to die and deliver <laughs> his lines. And they're going, tick, 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 tick. so it was, it's horrible because you have to get it. You have to make the movie. And if you don't make your day and you're moving the next day to the next location, you have a big hole in your film that you don't have time to fill. And we had a hundred of those days that were impossible to make. And we somehow made made it happen. But that was really early in the shoot. And it was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I really, can we delay this? And no, we can't. We're in this location. We're not coming back to this location. There's nothing else for us to shoot here. We've got to do this. And so you have to take that responsibility and, and take the risk that somebody's going to get pneumonia, which you, you don't want to take. Yeah, it was not a happy night. <laughs> 
It does it look good. Yeah, yeah, it looks amazing. <laughs> you can't tell. Yeah. Now, it, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this to you in person because I've said it on Twitter a bunch. <laughs> I've said it a million times. Your version of The Shining is my favorite. Well, thank you. So I, I have to I have to talk about The Shining because I love it so much. Sure. What was it like filming at the Stanley Hotel, knowing that that was where King created this? Well, not only was it great shooting there, but the night we scouted it, you know, Warner Brothers was trying to talk us into shooting in Canada to make it cheaper because everybody shoots in Canada. They have it's less expensive to do that. But I said, look, if we're on our way to Canada and I was with uh, a Warner executive and our producer and, and a couple of execs, can we please stop in Estes Park at the uh, Stanley Hotel? Because this is the place. And we stopped there and scouted it. And I stayed in room 217. Nice. By choice. <laughs> uh, that's just how I roll. Uh, <laughs> we stopped there and I said, guys, look, this is the overlook. And one of the execs went to call the studio and came back and said, you're right, we don't need to go to Canada. <laughs> so we canceled our flight to Canada. It's just perfection. You read that book, you go to the Stanley Hotel, you can't imagine it taking place anywhere else. Now, we built some of those sets that are not in the hotel, but uh, the hotel itself was so conducive to us and it was closed for the season, we were able to take it over. Although when we went back in the spring to shoot the non-winter sequences, we had to shut it down for a while, but not as long as as the winter shoot that we did. Now, it was, I believe, two years ago, I have some family out in Colorado and we went up to the Stanley, so I got to see it in person myself. Have you been back since to see the mini museum they have set up from The Shining? I have, you know, they briefly did the Overlook Film Festival there. And I, I came back as a guest. And not only that, but originally the lobby was painted white. And we went in and what you saw in the lobby was what we did. We repainted it <laughs> to look like it was wood finish. Yeah. And they kept it there. And it's so much more beautiful. And we brought in better furniture and all mm -hmm. kinds of stuff for the lobby. And they wisely kept it because we gave it the real feel of a hotel. I mean, the hotel was built in 1919. It's it's genuinely an old place. Or 1909? No, 1919, I think. It had been modernized. The rooms hadn't, but the lobby had. And it was all stark and white. And and we were able to re-jigger re King's Overlook Hotel. And that's what it became. When I went there, I saw the, the dollhouse replica that they had and i was like i i want this i would like to have well this. we built that for the show yeah <laughs> oh that's amazing yeah it's in it's in the movie oh I just, i've had a question i just forgot it that's why there's two of them <laughs> right <laughs> oh no my role was just to sit and stare in awe like i said yeah like she promised you yeah, would. yeah. i've done a little better than that <laughs> I, you talk about uh, the the casting of Stephen Weber as Jack Torrance and how that was. Yeah. Uh, how many people did you go through before you finally got to Stephen? Not as many as we would have liked. I was very naive about this. I just figured we're going to do The Shining as written. It was well known that King was not 
a big fan of the Kubrick film. And this was his opportunity to tell that story. And he wrote the screenplay himself. And so it was kind of shocking to have reaction. The first inkling I had was I called Gary Sinise and said, would you be interested in playing Jack Torrance? And he said, you know, I'd be wary of stepping into Mr. Nicholson's shoes. Mm. And I suddenly had mm -hmm. this revelation. Oh, and our <laughs> producer, Mark Carliner said, every actor is going to think that the reviews are all going to start mm -hmm. with so-and-so is good, but he's no Jack yeah. Nicholson. <laughs> so we had that. And the only actors that I'd met with that weren't intimidated by that were British actors. And one of them actually agreed to do it. We cast him, but we never heard back from him for weeks on end, but for a couple of weeks at a time. We kept calling his agent and said, well, I can't reach him. And so he basically ghosted us. Wow. So three days before shooting was to begin, we were staying in Colorado and we still didn't have our Jack Torrance. And he's in practically every scene in the movie. So Lynn Kressel brought in Steven Weber, and he's an actor whose work I'd only seen in uh, Single White Female and a couple small roles. I'd never seen Wings. He came in and read with Rebecca de Mornay and just blew us away. <laughs> I mean, he was amazing. And he was still shooting on wings and we had to wait several days. We started by shooting a bunch of second unit stuff. We had to shoot something because we were on schedule and rolling, but he brought so much bravery to that part. He was not cowed by Kubrick or Nicholson and he made it his. He also portrays the descent that is in the book. David Cronenberg once said to me that his issue with Kubrick's Shining was that Jack starts out crazy and gets crazier. Whereas in the book and in our version, hopefully, it's a person you care about mm -hmm. who has a drinking problem and it's getting the worse of him and he's trying his best to change and he is subsumed by forces outside his control. Yeah, I think in that plays so well, the, the way I kind of phrased it was similar that the Kubrick version, you're not wondering if Jack is going to start drinking again. You're waiting for him to start with, right. with your version. It is you hang on to the hope that he's not going to do it because yeah. you can see him trying so hard and the chemistry with the family is so good. And it just it makes uh, that first drink <laughs> heartbreaking. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Weber, he's one of my favorite people and such a great actor. And working with him every day was a constant pleasure. He carried a lot of demons during that performance, and he just did it with grace. And my hat is off to him. He really killed it. Well, before we let you go, uh, I just want to know. Wait, we, oh, what? we have to let him go. Yeah, he has, he has a, a life outside uh. of the show. Occasionally. But only after a couple of questions from CM because she's <laughs> quiet. And, and I'm not I'm not, I'm not going to intimidate her. Yeah. Sam, do you want to take our last few questions? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for our our listeners out there who are fans of your work, and if they're not yet fans, I'm sure they will soon become wonderful fans. <laughs> do you have any advice for people, independent creators, 
who, who love horror and are trying to figure out how to make their mark and how to get into this career? Well, it's never been more difficult, and yet there are so many more options on doing it. You know, when I started out, we shot film. Film was expensive. Lab work was expensive. Not everybody had a camera. Steven Soderbergh made a movie with his iPhone, and it's great. Almost anybody has access to a computer, to a phone with an HD camera, to sound software that comes with your MacBook or whatever you have. For me, it was writing. It costs you nothing but time and working and being aware and trying to create something original, realizing that what you're doing is what thousands of other people are trying to do as well. And you need to create something that will stand out in a stack. If you're a writer, if you're writing a book or a manuscript or a screenplay or whatever, the people, the gatekeepers get piles of them every day. Mm -hmm. And if you're an agent, you take 30 scripts home a week and you don't read every page of those scripts because most of them are not very good. But if you tell a story in a way that nobody's seen before or with a voice that's unique or that has a depth or range or is surprising, that's going to stand out because most of what they read doesn't. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with filmmaking. You know, there are a lot of great tricks you can do and visual effects that used to cost millions of dollars that you can do on your MacBook now. That's great, but it's in the service of a story. And one of my pieces of advice I often give is don't use your best friends as your cast unless <laughs> they are the most talented people you know. You know, there's nothing that makes your film seem more amateurish than actors who aren't capable. Mm -hmm. And once it feels amateurish, nobody is going to think about it in a professional manner. So go to the film schools and get, or, or, or colleges and universities, their drama departments, and get the best people in those departments. You're making a movie that will provide them with some material that they can use to show off their talents mm -hmm. and just collaborate with the best people available to you. And if they're not available to you, find a way to get them. Despite the fact that this means I'll probably never be in another movie again. <laughs> that is fantastic advice. It's really wonderful. Well, it's, it's heartfelt because I want everybody to be able to do their best work. And it's, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not a competition. I, I mean, it is competitive, but there's room for a lot of good people out there. Mm -hmm. That sounds too like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're also saying that being passionate about the thing you're doing and doing it with intent and understanding why you're doing it, not just jumping on a bandwagon because, you know, horror's in this year right. makes a big difference. It's a big difference and have a story to tell. That's the most important thing. And the people who are in that story you want to identify with them. You know, they don't all have to be good guys, but they should be sympathetic in the sense that you understand where, where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull, Jake LaMotta's character is kind of a despicable guy, but you're willing to go for two and a half hours on that ride mm -hmm. with him because it's such a compelling character and story. I'm sorry to use something that's so old, but <laughs> it's a good example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the passion is going to show it's going to show if you if you do it to make money. It's going to show, and uh, you know your script 
needs to stand out from everything else that, that they read. And they are not necessarily going to buy that script, but they might think of it as a great sample for, they might be looking for a writer that, oh, this guy or this woman would be great for this project. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult nut to crack, but the first step after creating something is getting it to an agent who can be helpful. So what is next for you? What's, what do you find interesting right now? Well, you know, I, uh, Clive Barker and I are working on putting a series together. He's written 10 new stories for, for this, specifically for this show. We've been talking to various production entities and networks and the like, and it looks like we're close to making a deal. The screenplay I told you about that originated 30 years ago that I've recently rewritten, that we hope will be going out to directors soon. Um, so it's an exciting time and, and doing the podcast uh, fills the uh, <laughs> emptiness in between. <laughs> There's a big emptiness because I used to travel around the world a lot to various film festivals where I'd be mm-hmm. invited to either show work or be on a jury or something. But since the pandemic, those have all been virtual. Yeah. And uh, it was one of the the highlights of my life was going all around the world and meeting these filmmakers and going places I otherwise would never have been able to go. Yeah. Hopefully we can get back to that someday. (laughs) I thought it would be this year, but yeah, (laughs) yeah. well there I'm scheduled to go to Norway in October, but Mm -hmm. uh, we'll see. They haven't opened up to the U S yet, but they just opened up to the UK. Time will tell. Yeah. (laughs) We're getting there slowly, but surely. (laughs) Yeah. Did you have anything else you wanted to say that we we didn't touch on or didn't give you enough time for? Nah, that's your job. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was a total pleasure. Really great to talk to the two of you. Yeah, it was so great to to have you. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Please join us for our next episode. For CM Alexander and Mick Garris, this is Joshua Kahn reminding you, create. It costs nothing but time. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to our interview with Mick Garris. I wish, as you listen to this, you could feel what we felt sitting in the studio on Zoom with him. It was a dream, and we can't thank him enough for taking the time to talk with us. Follow Mick's career, listen to his podcast. If you haven't seen some of the movies we talked about, do yourself a favor and watch them as soon as you can. So, Ben was sad that he couldn't join us for this, but not as sad as he's about to be when he hears this bit of audio I saved from when Mick first joined us. Oh, man. Only two of you this time. Yeah, Ben couldn't make it. He uh, he works third shift. So every once in a while, he's just he has to sleep. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll tell him that because he's not here, he's not going to get uh, his fuzz bucket costume that he requested. Yep, that's it. I had one and only one, and that was for him. That was for him. <laughs> that's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.